Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello, welcome along. It's the Magic Book Club podcast with me, Tom Price. This is the podcast where I find out exactly what makes our favourite authors put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard, ideas onto the page. So on today's episode, I'm going to catch up with the writer of Australian word of mouth sensation, The Dictionary of Lost Words. She's called Pitt Williams. She's going to be joining us down the line all the way from the other side of the planet. And we've got our very own Emma B talking to the literary icon, the legend that is the one and only Nick Hornby joining us on today's episode to talk about his new Brexit-era romance novel. I know, it's quite a genre, that. Quite the hybrid genre. Uh, It's a great book, just like you. I've read it, and I absolutely loved it. So, sit back, put yourself a cup of tea, put the lead on the dog, get ready for a nice walk in this spring sunshine as we find out just what makes these authors tick. Okay, so joining us now on the Book Club podcast, don't say that we aren't an intercontinental podcast because I'm very excited about this. We have got the fabulous Pip Williams all the way from Australia. Hello, good morning slash good evening, Pip. Hello, Tom. How are you? And it is good evening here. Good, right. Okay, well, I mean, that's the that's the first conversation. I really can't get over the idea of talking to people in different time zones. I always have to waste at least five minutes uh, just really digging into that. So, so what what time are you at at the moment? It's just about seven o'clock okay, in the evening. Okay, all right. And which bit of Australia are you in? I live in the Adelaide Hills, which is South oh. Australia, right down the bottom. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. You know, um, to f- forgive the narcissism, and we will we will talk about your book eventually. Um, did oh, you no, know no, this... we can keep talking about you for as long as you like. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you sound like my long suffering wife. Um, <laughs> you know, did you know there's a town in Western Australia called Tom Price? I didn't know. Oh, well, you do no. now. You, that's my name. I do. So, if, if <laughs> you ever, fantastic. it is good, isn't it? If you ever want to visit me, then uh, do just head over to Tom Price in Western Australia. It's a mining town, and it used to be a, there used to be a Mount Tom Price, but they've literally mined the whole mountain away. So now it's just Tom Price. Oh, they didn't value it for itself, so they just knocked the top off. Talk about a metaphor for my life. Anyway, um, let's talk about your book. Come on, we really must do that. Uh, Pip, your book, The Dictionary of Lost Words, it is absolutely fantastic. Congratulations, first and foremost, on this book. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And it also, can I just say, and I know it's probably quite naughty to talk about this on, on sort of book club podcasts, we should really talk about the meat, but the packaging here. When I, when I got this in the post, my noise was something along the lines of, ooh, it's so beautiful. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I, I, um, I tell you what, even though I have received a box of my own copies, if I saw it in a bookstore here, I would take it off the shelf and pay for it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I, I really, I was, I, yeah. I mean, what is that moment? It's not something we've talked about much on the podcast. What is that moment like when, when you see, I mean, we've talked about the idea of seeing your own book and what an incredible moment that is. But when you see it and it's this gorgeous, and it looks, it's just a work of art. It's gorgeous. Oh, it is. And inside and out, quite literally. So I've, I've actually never seen a book that has such beautiful end pages. So the pages right at the beginning before the words start and right at the end after the words are finished. There's there's just all this um, there's all these slips of paper, um, you know, that conjure part of the story. But it, it's absolutely beautiful, and um, I feel so grateful for the um, the love and care that's been put into every aspect of the book. Yeah, Shadow and Windows, who are the publishers in the UK. Yeah, it is. It's it's a magnificent thing to have a book that looks so good, but also it's pretty helpful to have a book 
that also is so good to read. Um, it's, it's so tell us, it's it's the story. What's the story of it? Of a, um, it's, it's it, how do I say it? a script a scriptorium <laughs> a scriptorium. Yes, yeah, so basically, yeah. So basically, I've written a fictional story where I've woven the um, story of a girl called Esme um, through the real story of the development of the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, and this was um, a, an amazing endeavour that happened over about 70 years, from about 1850s to 1928, when the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary was finally published in full. Um, Twelve large volumes full of words, full of... The original idea was to publish every word in the English language, words that were being used currently, but also words that were obsolete. Um, so it was a huge endeavour, um, and that's what I wanted to write about. It's it's amazing. I mean, much like we take for granted the fact that we're casually chatting while you're in Australia and I'm sitting here in uh, London, we also casually take for granted the idea that words and information are at the tips of our fingers now. And 100 years ago, surprise, surprise, this definitely wasn't the case. This really was a huge undertaking, wasn't it? It was enormous. So the, the dictionary that most people were using before that was Samuel Johnson's dictionary. Um, and while that was um, a very much loved dictionary, it was quite idiosyncratic. Um, it certainly didn't define every word in the English language, uh, though it, it did improve on many of the dictionaries before it in that it had um, everyday words as well as unusual words in it. But Samuel Johnson, um, when he first uh, um, undertook that particular project, um, he, he made up some of the uh, meanings of words if he couldn't find them. Um, and so <laughs> That'd it's be so quite, much fun! <laughs> it, wouldn't it? It would be great fun. <laughs> but at some point, yes, the, the gentlemen of the London Philological Society decided that England and the English language needed a new dictionary and one that was um, a little more uh, thorough and um, one that could be viewed as definitive, in fact. Um, not, not that they ever thought that the language was fixed. There was always this idea that the words would continue to evolve and new definitions and new words would, would um, continue to need to be defined. But uh, they did um, want to cover the whole of the language. And so it was an extraordinary undertaking and almost impossible. Yes, yes, that's... That's the elephant in the room with this whole thing, the impossibility of it. They're trying to, they're trying to pin down clouds here. This is just, it's, it's, it feels impossible. That's right. And, um, and in fact, I think it was impossible for a few decades until they got James Murray uh, to be the editor. And mm. James Murray, who, who was eventually Sir James Murray, he took on the project. He wasn't from Oxford or Cambridge. He was a school teacher from from Scotland, so initially there was some resistance to him becoming the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. What, because he was um, Scottish? Well, no, not because he was Scottish, right, but because was he wasn't say. because he wasn't educated at Oxford okay, or Cambridge. I think. Okay, right. So a, a different type of snobbery, right? <laughs> That's right. He was a lowly school teacher, mm. uh, but you know he spoke several languages, and he really was the best person for the job at the time. Um, and he, I think, he started one of the first crowdsourced projects because it was his idea to send out essentially um, notices in journals and, and um, periodicals around the world asking people to help 
collect words and sentences that demonstrate how they're used and send them in to the scriptorium, which was a huge shed in the back of his garden, where he and a group of lexicographers collated these slips of paper that people sent in from all around the world. Um, they collated them chronologically and it helped them to define those words and to define the English language. It's an amazing fact, and I love how you're blending fact and fiction with this story. And we'll get on to Esme in a minute, this, this lead character who enters this, uh, this world. But this idea that there's a web of information, uh, that, that it's almost like an analogue Twitter that he's, you know, he, he's, he sends out for all these words to come in. And the thrill and the excitement that that must have led to, seeing words flying in from around the world, you can't imagine it. Can you? It, must have been like, it must have been like hearing from, uh, from foreign planets. You know, it must have been incredible. Oh, absolutely. And from what I um, have learnt from the research, you know, sackloads of little slips of paper about the size of a postcard would arrive at his house address. Uh, and, and equally, a huge amount of correspondence left the scriptorium, so much so that um, the local council uh, installed... Um, it's, he, he ended up with his own red letterbox outside huh. his house so that he didn't have to travel too far to post all of the correspondence that he had to engage in. And it's still there. If you visit Oxford, you can see this, this red post box outside the house. I love how the, the depth of information. And this, you know, when people write historical fiction, and, uh, you know, by the way, I'm, you, you probably do know this, Pip. This is, your book has been shortlisted for the 2021 Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. And it, it, it's I, do, not... I do know that. Tom. Oh, you did? Okay, great, great. Um, <laughs> yes. Just in case. Uh, and congratulations on that, obviously. Um, but it's, it's, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, but it's this level. The historical fiction is only good when you have fantastic characters, but also you have that depth of detail. You, you must have had to research so much to begin to build this world again. I did, um, but I enjoyed it immensely. In fact, the book started um, not... Be well... The idea came to me after I read um, Simon Winchester's book, The Surgeon of Crowthorn, which is a non-fiction book about the relationship between James Murray and one of the people who sent in words. Um, very interesting, but I got a sense from reading that book that this was a very male endeavour. So yes. not only was the editor and all of the editors male at the time um, and all the lexicographers were male, most of the assistants were male, but not all of them. There were some women who worked in the scriptorium and also at the old Ashmolean. Um, but the, the most important thing was that the literature that they were turning to in order to define the words was mostly written by men. And not just um, any old men, but men who were educated and literate. Um, and... And I suddenly realised that this dictionary, not that I had the Oxford English Dictionary on my shelf, but I looked at the dictionaries that I had in my house and I realised I've never questioned their authority. I've always thought that they were the final arbiter of truth when it came to arguments about words and meanings. And suddenly I realised that there was this possibility that they were gendered and probably class there was, you know, class biases as well within yeah. the dictionary, but particularly that first Oxford English Dictionary. And so I, I did a bit of reading around it for my own interest. Um, and I kept coming across this lovely little anecdote. Um, and the anecdote was that only one word was ever lost from the Oxford English Dictionary by accident. And that word was the word bondmaid. 
And bondmaid means a slave girl. And according to the history books, James Murray only found out about 13 years after the publication of A and B. And he refused to admit that any other word had ever gone missing. And he couldn't explain why bondmaid had gone missing. And because he couldn't explain it, I suddenly realised I had a story. Mm. Fantastic. It's such a... It's such a telling moment. It's such a telling moment. And, and so, so into this gentleman's world, uh, you, you throw in Esme. Tell us a little bit about, about Esme. So it's not a spoiler to say that Esme, at the age of four, she's the daughter of one of the lexicographers who is sitting around the sorting table in the scriptorium in James Murray's garden. Um, and she sits under the table as quiet as a mouse, essentially, and one day a little slip of paper falls off the edge of the table and into her lap. And that slip of paper is the word bondmaid. And in my fiction, Esme is the reason bondmaid goes missing. She keeps this slip of paper and she hides it in a trunk uh, that she keeps under the, the bed of the maid in James Murray's big house who occasionally looks after her. And this is the beginning of her interest in words. And what I was interested in really is understanding, I had two questions when I started. And the first was, do words mean different things to men and women? Mm. And if they do, is it possible that we've lost something in the effort to define them? And, and so what I was interested in exploring was what effect would the words have on this little girl as she grows up? in the scriptorium and also what effect might this girl have on the words and so the whole story really is exploring those those two questions mm. and she's a girl without a mother as well so she is being brought up by words and men i mean obviously there's lizzie and there's the the maids around her but she's been brought up in this very very male world but she has this strength of character to to power through and to become her own woman it's it's a fascinating read in that sense yeah, absolutely. But you actually said it and no one said that in quite the same way before. And I love it. She has she is being brought up by the words because she's literally in a in a room that is um, filled with words. So if you can imagine um, a musty sort of um, book lined and paper lined um, room where there are pigeonholes um, from floor to ceiling all over the room and those pigeonholes hold the slips that people are sending in and there are thousands and thousands of them and they're all ordered um, by alphabet and by chronology and and so Esme whenever she wants to she can look up a word and see all of the different ways it's been used and she has the advantage over the rest of us because she can look up those words from the pigeonholes before they're used in the actual dictionary and many of them will never get into the dictionary so she can see um, which words are considered valuable and which words aren't it's fascinating she's like this sort of linguistic frontier but i i why well, I, I do it did resonate with me in that sense because my father died when i was very young and one of the things i inherited from him was all of his books boxes and boxes mm. of books and this idea of being brought up by a kind of a legacy of a, a library or, or books or words i think uh, then there's something this 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 book of yours the dictionary of lost words it taps into that treasure trove and how people can live on in words and books there's a kind of 
you know, you're, you're time travelling when you look at words, aren't you? And, and that comes across beautifully in this. Yes, I think so too. And one of the characters, uh, Dita, who is uh, Esme's godmother, and she's actually based on a real character, and I'll talk about her in a moment if you like, but mm. she, says, she says to Esme at some point that words are a way of resurrecting people. Um, you know, so sometimes when you talk about a person who has died, who's no longer there, when you, when you talk about them, when you give, you give them meaning with words... Um, and it's a way of resurrecting someone or something that has been important to you is to um, ascribe words to it, meanings to it. Um, yeah. And I think for those of us who have grown up uh, loving words, even if we didn't grow up with them all around us, if we've accumulated books like I have <laughs> in my house, you know, they, they give me great comfort. I would far prefer sort of walls lined with, with books than walls lined with, with artwork. In yeah. a way, I find them beautiful to look at, you know, the constant variation in colour and titles and, and all of those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, others would just call me a hoarder, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, I think they do represent that possibility. I, I often have that weird fantasy. I used to have it as a child. You know, if, I don't know, if the end of the world came, I'd, I'd have enough books to get me through to the end of my life. <laughs> Yes, you know, yes. I could just read for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, 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 I did this actually because it's really morbid, but I sometimes look at my TBR, my to-be-read pile, and I think that actually that'll probably see me out now. <laughs> I'm 40 and I'm like, oh God, I've got too many books here. But it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny how when you're in love with words, and let's assume our listeners are, and that's why they've ended up listening to this, you know, it does, it does provide you with this tremendous comfort. I think so, yeah, because you know, and I think especially last year, um, now I know because I have a lot of family, I was born in the UK and I have a lot of family and friends over there and I have visited quite frequently over my lifetime um, and I was there in, in October um, 2019 for oh, yeah. my final research trip actually. Oh, okay. um, but I know that um, the whole COVID thing has been incredibly difficult uh, for people living in the UK. Um, and I'm sure that those those who have been readers have found some solace in books. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, for all of us, we've turned to books over the past 12 months to help us escape from mm. reality. You know, when doom scrolling, which is one of those beautiful words which... Um, entered into the Oxford English Dictionary, actually, for 2020. Doom scrolling has, <laughs> you know, has just gotten too much for us. We, yeah. we pick up either a book we've loved or a new book that is about something else. You know, it's either futuristic or it's a historical novel or, you know, and it helps us to sort of cope with our reality, I think. Humans have to be able to escape the presence uh, even in the good times we, we have to be able to do that and in the bad times yes. it's even more important and what's really interesting about uh, if you look at the trends with books during lockdown is people went back to authors they loved if you looked at the top 10 it wasn't it wasn't debut novelists which you probably don't want to hear but it was it was really all about recognizable uh names so like stephen king for example still churning out incredibly brilliant books and his books went straight to the top because people wanted to go to what they knew they wanted to go to a comfortable safe place maybe not Stephen King being the best example of a safe place but it it, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I was about it to say. yeah <laughs> I was thinking. the stand really but it, it did there's there's something about going 
you know, you want to go and sit beside your favourite storyteller. If you could choose to walk into a room and you've got storytellers in each room, you want to go into a room which has got someone you've sat with before. I think that's the best way of putting it. Completely. And you want to go somewhere you've been before, you know, something, yes. something you recognise um, because it was a year we didn't recognise, you know. Everything um, that happened took us by surprise and was something we had to learn to cope with. And mm. I think in, in books, and actually um, in Australia, because this book was published in Australia um, at the beginning of our first lockdown uh, back in April last year, um, and in fact, I, I think because it's historical fiction, um, it did provide that comfort because it wasn't talking about the kind of trauma that we're living through. Mm. Um, and, and it actually did do very well in Australia. So, yes, well, um, the most important word of all is word of mouth, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right, so Esme, um, you know, not only is she similarly to what we were just talking about, drawing back on, on, on words to find comfort and continuity, but also in, in terms of changing what the Gentleman's Club perceived as important words. She goes out, she takes herself uh, to, to the markets where she meets uh, new characters, where she meets all the swear words. That is a hilarious part of the book. When she gets to, I think it's fair to see, our listeners can probably work out what's going on when she gets to the letter C, and, and that yeah, yeah. word comes along. I was really pleased you did that, actually, Pip. I was really pleased about that because I thought, is this going to be a bit prudish and avoid that stuff? But uh, absolutely not because, uh, you know, rude words, as much as the Gentleman's Club would have seen them as rude, they are as valid a part of our language as any other word. That's right. And this is one of the interesting things about the Oxford English Dictionary. James Murray sort of came up with quite a scientific um, criteria for the inclusion of words and what was interesting, and he, he stuck to it in the main, but what was interesting were the words that were actually left out. Um, and there, I didn't sort of discover this uh, completely by myself, of course. Uh, there was a, there's a dictionary scholar from the UK called Linda Mugglestone who... Oh, what a surname. Um, the, what a surname. I know. Oh, I know. come on. So Harry Potter. It, it <laughs> <I know>. is. <laughs> Um, and I had the pleasure of, of having coffee with her once when I was in um, Oxford, but also I had already read her um, very interesting book about um, words that had been excluded from dictionaries, including the Oxford English Dictionary. And a lot of these swear words um, were excluded on purpose because they were considered vulgar. Uh, and some, you know, some of the, the men involved in the dictionary didn't think that such words should be encouraged. Mm. <laughs> of course, when you ban anything, you are encouraging people to read it, listen to it, use it. So um, it's never a good idea to ban something. But um, the C word, because um, I'm not sure what your audience will accept me saying, <laughs> um, was one of those words. It's actually got a very long history in the English language. It's as English as any word you could, you could think of. Mm. Um, and also originally it wasn't um, a, an insult. It wasn't a word that was used um, in the way it's used today. It was a euphemism. Um, and we could think of a lot of euphemisms today that you know people, people aren't offended by and that's how it was used hundreds of years ago. But like most words, it evolves and it changes depending on who's using it um, and also depending on the, you know, the attitudes um, of the day. What was interesting um, when I was doing the research is that 
James Murray decided not to include this word because it was vulgar, and there is, um, you know, I, that there is that was what he wrote um, that it's vulgar and to ex- exclude it. And he got a lot of letters from um, other scholars, other people interested in what words went in and what words were kept out. And one that I remember beautifully was, and it was from a man who said, the thing itself is not vulgar. And he was advocating for its inclusion in the dictionary for that reason. And that's, you know, that's an attitude that I um, fully support. (laughs) The thing itself is not vulgar. So words related to it should, should be included. Yeah, it's it's only what we put on those words. That's when the problems start. But in terms, of the all words are innocent. <laughs> all words that's are right. Innocent. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, this is a great read, the Dictionary of Lost Words, Pip, and congratulations on on how well it's done. It's absolutely fabulous. It's become this word of mouth hit in in Australia. It's doing incredibly well over here. Um, the obvious question: it, This has got film written all over it. Uh, has it been optioned? No, <laughs> no, okay. but it did just come out. It's only just come out in the UK and the US last week. So right. um, fingers crossed, you know. Yes, yes, too <laughs> I, right. I've heard that. It's lovely because actually I've heard that from so many people mm. um, that they can visualise it, and um, which is a huge, a huge um, compliment. Uh, and I, I take it, you know, I take it on with gratitude. And yes, I'd love to see it as a film because I've visualised it in my head so many times. Yes. Um, and it's a lovely place to dwell. Maisie Williams is Esme, please. Maisie Williams. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm oh, calling it, I'm like just, that. I'm calling it now, I'm calling it now. Um, okay. Pip, what's, okay. what's next for you, please? What, what's, I mean, obviously going to bed is probably high on the list because it's late there in Australia. Uh, what it's are you writing? It's late. I'm not, uh, what, what, what is I'm the not, time now? I'm not, uh, it's only 7.20. That's late. <laughs> I've got a few hours That's... in me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in bed by nine o'clock. Um, uh, what's, what's next for you then, Pip, writing wise? Well, I am actually writing another novel. Um, One of the things that um, 2020 allowed me to do was to write because Mm. every single event was cancelled, as you can imagine. So there was no book launch. There were no, you know, book festivals. There was nothing of the kind. And so I had a lot of time to think about my next book. And actually, and I, I don't mind talking about what I'm writing. I'm not very superstitious, but... I'm not done with Oxford and so I'm very interested in... I spent so much time at Oxford University Press doing the research that I became quite interested in the women who worked in the bindery. So my oh. next book is about a bindery girl from Excellent. Oxford University Press. Yeah. Oh, I look forward to that. <laughs> very good. OK, good. All right, well, listen, Pip, uh, good luck. Uh, good luck with that. And, and, and thank you so much for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast, The Dictionary of Lost Words, uh, by Pip Williams, who is heading off to bed right now, is out now. Thanks so much, Tom. It's lovely chatting to you. Pip Williams there, absolutely brilliant, fascinating story, and definitely a writer with a huge future. We are very excited now to be joined by an award-winning writer, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, a songwriter. I mean, he's just an all-round very clever dude. It's only Nick Hornby. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? And are you feeling positive about the ease of restrictions? Is it going to be a good 2021? Uh, well, what's left of it? Oh, God, I know. <laughs> it's I April. Know. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to going to a shop. Uh, <laughs> so exciting! And a football match. I'm thinking as well, perhaps. Well, a my team is terrible, 
Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know if I want to go and see them. Uh, and B, I don't know, you're, it's not going to be a full stadium for a while, I don't think, is it? It's not. What are you going to buy in a shop, Nick? Uh, I'm going to buy a book. Yes. When I've browsed the bookshop, rather oh. than going on a website and trying to decide what I want to read, I'm going to skip around a bookshop and I might buy a t-shirt <laughs> again something I've chosen uh, it's going to be wild it's going to be wild rock and roll there's nothing like the serendipity of happening upon a book you didn't I'm know fed you up. wanted exactly I'm fed up of going uh, to the shops for bags of revels <laughs> Uh, now, okay, Are, have the bags of revels accompanied jigsaws and crossword puzzles that you have been indulging in whilst in lockdown? Uh, no, revels happen in the evenings, whereas jigsaws and crossword puzzles happen mostly during the day. <laughs> See, I should have done my research about your timetable <laughs> of pastimes. I feel terrible. Um, uh, so whilst you've been puzzling away, eating revels in the evening, how have you managed to drag yourself away from that space to write? What do you do to discipline yourself into writing? Well, I don't find it too much uh, trouble. I've, I've got uh, an office, which is a, a small stu studio flat about 10 minutes from where I live. And I decided it was okay to go there because it's an empty flat and um, uh, it's much easier to work here than it is at home. Um, and I just come every day and I've always done that. And I don't necessarily write all day, but I'm in a writing space, uh, which means that by the end of the day, something has got a bit longer. I can't say anything more exciting about it than that, but yet there's usually more of it at the end of the day than there was at the beginning. Do you stand up and walk around and talk to yourself out loud or do you write notes? What is your, what's your writing process? If we were to be a fly on the wall in that space, what would we see? Well, um, it very much depends on what I'm doing. Right now, I'm trying to write this um, very ambitious TV drama series and I have a lot of note cards pinned uh, to the cork board behind me uh, because <laughs> I can't keep track of everything without it. Uh, when I'm writing a novel, um, I tend to just write. I've been thinking about it for a long time, uh, usually a year or two before I sit down to actually write it. So I know quite a lot about the people and the narrative tends to generate itself during the course of the writing, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and every now and again, I, I get a great big art book, sketchbook, and I scribble big words in felt-tip pens. Not not very much, but enough to get me out of a hole. Wow. Okay. And I guess as well, because you are the master of pulling lots of little vignettes and bits of stories to kind of together in this this great big, you know, this this these finales that we have with you. Um, and they start from different places and, you know, people meet in different areas and, and the actual the sort of ge the, the, ge ge the sort of, I suppose, the literary geography of that is really complicated, isn't it, sometimes? Well, um, thank you for suggesting that it might be. But, um, <laughs> I, have a, I, I have, like, my brain is nowhere near the size of yours, so for me it is complicated. <laughs> I, I think when that's all you're doing... Um, you're, you know, it is a world that you've created and that you have to live in for yeah. a year or two years or more. And, and so you, you, you kind of know it like you do any other 
local area. Um, you, you know which streets to walk down and, and who's going to be where. So you, you sort of have the material in your control by a certain point. Talking about Just Like You, your new book, uh, there is a, a whole lot to unpack in this as well. Um, it is superb. I've really enjoyed it so far. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm not going to give too much away, but uh, uh, we can tell the story. It's a young working class black man, an older middle class white woman. There's a romance. Uh, this is in the middle of the EU referendum. Um, uh, so there are, there are lots to grapple with there. There's age gap, there's situation, there's politics. How did you see all these things fitting together? Why was this such an attractive scenario for you? Well... The characters of Lucy and Joseph came a few years ago and that literally came from watching an observation in a shop where um, a, a couple, you know, one serving and the other one buying, they had a little flirt. And, um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, they, they look like a cute couple. Um, and then when I came away, I thought, there are so many reasons why they'll never get together. Um, and we know what they all are. And... Um, uh, and I thought, are they really as insuperable as we think? Are all those things, class, education, um, uh, race, whatever, are, are they really insurmountable? And I, over the next couple of years, started to think about them and think about how you could get around this one and what that one would mean. But I didn't do anything with the people. I didn't know why to write about them at that particular moment and then about a year after the referendum campaign where it seemed like one half of the country was never going to talk to the other again <laughs> I thought oh this is a good time to write a book about separation there's um I, oh god haven't we missed a little flirt over a counter as well I'm going to enjoy that maybe, well, maybe we'll... <laughs> <clears throat> frankly when I say I'm going shopping on Monday <laughs> Number one, priority. <laughs> Find a flirt. Excellent. And you are so, so good. at. I mean, what we all love about your writing is that, you know, there are these just wonderfully casual everyday occurrences that are given such significance with you. Do you do you walk around? I mean, how are you absorbing it all? I mean, I you know, I have a notebook to so that I've got funny things to say in the afternoon or whatever. Are you writing stuff down? Are you just, you know, taking it all in? How does how do they make their way onto the paper? Uh, I think most of it comes from inside, but that's from having been nosy all my life. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything that literally goes straight from life into a book. I'm not sure that uh, certainly fiction doesn't necessarily work like that because once you've got your characters you want them to do and say certain things in order to take you in a certain direction and you'll be very lucky if you can find anything lying around in the street as it were that's going to help you with that. There's um, the, the referendum obviously plays a huge part in this and, and you know um, I, I it affected so many relationships family, friends, you know, you would, we all found ourselves in situations where it yeah. went to naught to uh, abject rage in, you know, seconds and, you know, really kind of looking at people that you'd known for a very long time going, I had no idea that, you've, <laughs> that you felt like this. I go reassessing yeah. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think ultimately just like you speaks to the things that can bring people together despite their differences. That's what we see in Lucy and Joseph. Uh, by the way, as well, I'm really done with people starting novels with objectionable Emmas, okay? <laughs> this is like enough with the objectionable well, you Emmas. You didn't get the memo. 
I didn't get the memo. I was No, like, it no. says if you want to be published, you have to have an objectionable <laughs> emo in the first three pages. <laughs> I'm like this. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I'm so here we sorry. Go. Thank you very much. She's not in it so. for that long. I'm glad. She's awful. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, and I, I think, you know, obvi- obviously you've mentioned it. We see that in Lucy and Joseph. We see that they come together despite differences. Was that always your intention? You know, was that that... That was the way the book was going to go. Did you know it was going to feel yes, like that? Yes, um, I I wanted to write a book about uh, reasons to be cheerful, I suppose, um, or you know causes for optimism. I want that optimism to be rooted in some kind of reality. Um, yes. So it, it didn't seem like any of these things that happen in the book were the most unlikely things in the world, and there are no outrageous coincidences incidences it really does come from a couple properly getting to know each other and prepared to give each other a chance and and forgive things about each other um but i think there's been so much miserable fiction published over the last five ten years and um i i I kind of see it with my kids they're like why are we being told that the world is going to end constantly in the things that we watch and read um and and of course it's true dystopia is this is hugely culturally significant and you understand why but maybe it, it would be nice sometimes for creative people to provide an alternate reality which didn't end that way yeah, I, I entirely agree. There's been a, there have been a handful of books that I've picked up over over lockdown, which I've just gone. I can't do this now. I can't. I can't do this now. Um, you know, and that is reflected, I think, with people. You know, just drawing away from the news and and looking to fiction and looking uh, to writing and and literature for you know for for some not fantasy but some some hope for sure. Well, the the whole the original history of literature was that it provided people entertainment. That's why we got the 19th century novels. And of course, now we think of the 19th century novels as the most serious things you could possibly read, but they were entertainment for the people at the time. Um, that's what Dickens was. Yeah. And, and, um, and the idea that you set out to do something that's going to not entertain people and make them extremely unhappy, I think would have uh, baffled uh, people earlier on in our cultural history. That's the scientists that did that back in the day, wasn't it? I'll leave that to the scientists. Yes, exactly. But I think this uh, whole thing about what you consume in a pandemic is completely up to you. You know, uh, I've said, you know, I've been recommended loads of things. And I said, what's it about? And uh, they say it's about a man who eats his own entrails. And I go, you know what? I'm going to wait until after uh, we've gone back to normal. (laughs) You are quite the world class re- recommender of books, aren't you? It is. It is. You. You know. You. It's. I know that you are quite proud of your ability to recommend books. I. I, I think I, it's my one genuinely world class talent. Is it your superpower? And do you? Yes. Like <laughs> <laughs> I need to know you. It's. <laughs> it, that's not to say it's cheating, but I, I don't think All you right. can just recommend the same book to every single person. You need to know who's reading it. Oh yeah, okay. Fair. That's a fair but enough. That's a get out clause. If you're like going to no, if you're going to ask me for a recommendation that I think everyone will love, I've got one. Is it yours by any chance? No, of <laughs> course on. not. Emma. Tell us. <laughs> uh, uh, Kevin Wilson's novel, Nothing to See Here. 
Yeah, that is that is on the pile, actually. I've not got round well, to it yet. Well, just pull it out of the pile. Put mine down. Read his. Okay. Oh, okay. Cool. Thank you very much for that. It's uh, now- funny and it's sad and it's incredibly entertaining and it's not unoptimistic. Well, listen, um, I, um, you know, I've, I've very much enjoyed um, what I've read so far. I've not managed to finish it yet, um, but, but it's, um, as always, it's, it's an absolute joy. And I think what I love so much as well is that, you know, I know that you're very proud of your community. I know that you're very proud of, of where you, where you are and the people in it. And, and there's something so sort of warm and casual about how, how easy that is for you that I, that I love in everything that you do. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, that's absolutely fine. And it's been a, a real pleasure to speak to you. Um, have a wonderful rest of the day. Revels or no revels. Might um, be like short socks. Um, don't start being controversial with this choice of sweet. <laughs> Good God, man. Um, all right. Well, listen, um, enjoy going to a bookshop. Buy yes, a I will. I really will. And I'm going to really, really, really enjoy reading just like you, the rest of it anyway, for the for the rest of my day. So thank you. It's been a pleasure, Nick. Thank you, Emma. A great chat with a seriously great author. And that is it. That's all we've got time for here on the Magic Book Club podcast. As ever, head over to magic.co.uk. You can see the rest of our carefully selected, uh, hand-picked April choices. Uh, and in the meantime, goes without saying, happy reading. Happy reading.